turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We are in a series titled, Imagining the Kingdom, Living as the Children of Light. Now, I know it might seem strange, and I've tried to explain this at least periodically as we walk through the series, but it might seem strange to talk about imagining the kingdom, because we all know the kingdom of God is real. We know it by faith, but uh, the reality is, by how most of us live, including myself, we don't naturally imagine the kingdom. We imagine a whole lot of other things. We don't, for instance, naturally imagine that this is our family. We have to stir our imaginations to realization that this is our family because we're more inclined to think this is our family me my kids this small this is our family but we have to stir our minds to realize this is our family and train ourselves in that and we have to stir our minds that we do live under the reign of Jesus and he is ruling on high over everything in heaven and on earth it's not just pretend and as we imagine it we'll actually begin to live in it and as we live in it it will become transformative on earth where we live. And so it's important that we imagine the kingdom. And the subtitle for this message is Living as Children of Light. And if you would, read with me from Ephesians chapter 5. This morning I'm going to read, at least initially here, from the English Standard Version uh, of that text. And uh, someday I'll explain why I jump back and forth from translation to translation uh, when I have more time. Uh, But... Uh, Verse 3, Ephesians 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, many of the ways that this text speaks, the language of this text, the phrases of this text are uh, at times a, a, a bit odd to us. They aren't the normal way we talk about things. And so we need help. We need help to, to think about these things, to comprehend them in, a, in the way that they were intended, to traverse the 2,000 years of time and culture uh, between that in which they were written and that in which we hear them. We pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to do that such that we would be obedient to your ways, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. A week and a half ago, 
Uh, it was a bit surreal as Donna and I were in St. Louis uh, as Hurricane Idalia. Now, where, where do we get these names? I'm beginning to wonder. They're starting to use a list of like names of t- small towns in southern Georgia. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually not one of those, but it's sounding that way. Um, <laughs> it's Vidalia. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> We're, 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 as, as, as that's coming, it's approaching the west coast of Florida. Now, despite living in, in Florida for 28 years, having become skeptical of the warnings, I, like I think probably most of us that have been here for a long time, still have in the back of my mind, well, this could be the one. I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical. I doubt anything's going to actually happen. But this, what if this were the one? Because, you know, at some point, the one is likely to hit. And so, you know, we have that there. We weren't watching the news. We were on vacation. I don't watch the news when I'm on vacation. I hardly watch it when I'm not on vacation. It's healthier that way. Initially, we heard about Adelia as people began asking us if we were worried or if we were going to be okay, which is kind of weird when you don't know what the basis for the question is. You begin to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Is there something I haven't looked in the mirror and seen this morning? I mean, what exactly are you wondering why I'm going to be okay about? Now, that experience is quite different from those of you who were here, having to decide if you need to board up, wondering if it's best to leave or stay, having the feeder bands, I presume, come through and put that hazy filter on the light of the sun, not utter darkness, but neither fully lit. You're grateful for the momentary pleasures of the cooler weather, but leery of the potential coming devastation. You know it's coming, or at least you're not exactly sure when or how, but it's coming. Or you don't know exactly what's going to impact you specifically, but again, you're being affected. In our text, Paul returns to the theme which began the body of this letter, uh, one which expresses our adoption by God. In in chapter 2, verse 1 and following, he speaks of what we were prior to our adoption, calling us sons and daughters, it's included there, of disobedience. He then goes on to describe our state as children of wrath or children of rage. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, He saved us. He made us alive. And now as Paul is moving toward the finish line of the body of this letter, he returns to this picture, except now we're no longer sons of disobedience, but rather children of light. We're not children of rage or wrath, but we're children of light, characterized by that light. The wrath of God, he says, is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. It's, it's a bit like Donna and I tracking Adelia from St. Louis. The storm's wrath is coming on the residents of Tampa Bay. Maybe, right? Maybe. We, we don't know for sure, but it might be. And I'm one of those residents, but I am not. I mean, at least not at the moment. I'm residing somewhere else at the moment. I'm in St. Louis. Well, actually, St. Charles County, but that's close enough. And all my earthly possessions, however, are still here. But I am not. 
Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I am not saying that hurricanes are God's wrath coming on the places they hit. Let me be perfectly clear about that. I am not equating a hurricane's wrath with God's wrath. I am merely using an analogy that illustrates what it means that the wrath of God is coming, this anticipation of a coming devastation. In Galatians, Paul praises God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the, Jesus, the Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Who gave himself for our sins, for what purpose? To rescue us from the present evil age. Now, most people in the world are unaware that this wrath is coming. Like I was that morning we were at breakfast and people started asking us, if we're okay and everything's going to be all right, I was completely unaware. And, of course, like I am most of the time with hurricanes, whether I'm here or elsewhere, uh, I, I, I tend to find out after Lowe's and Home Depot have uh, sold out of all the plywood except the $65 a sheet plywood. Yeah, that's what we've got. You can, you can use $65 a sheet plywood or some such thing to cover your windows because I'm just not paying that much attention. Jesus gave himself at the cross for our sins. Now, we generally do think of Jesus rescuing us from our sins, but in order to save us from hell. But notice what it says in Galatians is that he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Most of us didn't even know we needed to be rescued from the coming evil age, or the present evil age. We just thought we needed to be saved from hell. This is great. Can I keep this going? But we need to be rescued from this, according to Galatians 1.4. Peter preached two sermons on the day of Pentecost. We have the verbiage for one of them, and we have the thesis statement for the second. Uh, We we all remember, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit falls, they're speaking in tongues, and Peter stands up and explains to them what's happening and preaches the gospel to them, right? And at the end of that first sermon, they ask, what must we do, brothers? So then Peter goes on to say, repent and be baptized. But then it tells us he preached a second sermon, for which we have this summary. It says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I didn't tell them to save themselves from coming hell. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The one upon, according to what we just read in our text today, the wrath of God is coming. Okay. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. Evil, according to Paul in Galatians, is what describes, what defines this present age. It is only done away with in the coming kingdom of Christ. And yet that kingdom has come, and is coming among us, and will come in fullness. We live in the overlap of the ages. The overlap between the present evil age and the future coming age. And we live in this in-between time where both exist simultaneously. Like Donna and I in St. Louis, we've all been transferred out of this evil age. And yet, like those living here in the haze that precedes such storms, we experience the darkness all around us. Paul's words in our text are relevant to how we live in order to make a difference in others who are still sons and daughters of disobedience. See, his words in our text 
They're relevant for us in relation to how we live so that they can make a difference in others who are still sons or daughters of disobedience. I want to explore this text under three headings. It's really two headings plus my conclusion I gave a heading to. So I've got two points plus a conclusion. So those are sons and daughters of disobedience, children of light, and then my conclusion embodying the light. And so if you would uh, look with me again under this first heading, sons and daughters of disobedience. And let's just read verse 3 to start off here again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We pray, our Father in heaven, your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come among us. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Underline what Paul says here in verse 3 is the assumption that the church is called to be a witness to the inbreaking kingdom of God. That whatever the watching world observes in us will reflect on God's name because we are His adopted sons and daughters. When we pray, Your name be hallowed, we pray that because in Israel they were constantly told that they should live such holy lives that the nations would look on and honor God, but instead it says that they looked at their lives and blasphemed God because they lived in such a way that was a disgrace to God's name. And so when we pray, Your name be hallowed, we're saying, Lord, May we live lives that would cause the onlooking world to honor your name. We see that idea repeated throughout the epistles by the various authors. I think that's what's lying behind this particular text. You see, in verse 3, Paul calls us saints, God's holy people. Our, Our calling to be holy people, saints... I don't know if it's the best translation because we relate to people that have died and gone to heaven. But saints in the biblical text, literally meaning holy people or holy person, a saint, is someone who is following Jesus Christ. And, and so that language, it's rooted in our priestly ministry to the world, to represent God to the world. Peter, the apostle, writes of this using language from Exodus 19. Language taken right out of the story of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. They had crossed the the wilderness, the Red Sea, and into the wilderness, and they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Peter says, But you, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's all right out of Exodus 19. It says that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And Paul is now speaking of us. We are God's holy people. Holy nation. And we are no longer darkness, but we are light in the Lord. Like Israel, we are to be holy as I am holy. To be holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. To be a faithful witness to God's inbreaking reign. We can no longer live by the idols of the age. We can no longer be satiated in our sexual appetites, our impure living, and our greed and covetousness. We've been called out of darkness into light. 
Now, it's important to remember, Paul's not talking to the world here, and he's not telling us what we need to tell the world here. He's talking to the church here. God's holy people. He's not telling us to go inform the world of how wicked they are. There is relevance in this for how we win the world, but not in confronting them with their sinful lifestyle. That's not the point of the text. An article in the Times of India, I'm not kidding, (laughs) it began with this quote, Ships do not sink because of water around them. Ships sink because of water that gets into them. That's obvious, right? There's no shortage of Christians in a panic because of the shifting morality of the world around us. What are we going to do? As if somehow that's going to change the church. Like that's our biggest problem, really? The last time I checked, there's been immorality in the world from day one. That is nothing new. In fact, there have been plenty of times in our history when it's been much worse as a human race than it is today, to be sure. The church isn't going to sink because of our culture or any culture where the church is because that culture slides into a pit of darkness. We are the children of light. What are these things which must not be named among us? What are these things? Well, commenting on verse 3, Origen uh, said that fornication... The NIV or the ESV both say sexual impurity. They translate that. But fornication, in the strict sense, is consorting with prostitutes. Impurity is the generic name, not only for adultery and pederasty, but also for all other inventions of sexual licentiousness in all their many and diverse practices. He describes our bodily existence as a whirlpool that, swirling downward, tries to pull us into its orbit and suck us in. I think there's a lot of truth in that picture. Greed, the ESV says covetousness. Greed, covetousness, both are fine translations. Uh, frankly, it's no longer a sin. I mean, I mean, well, at least according to American values, it's no longer a sin. Greed is what drives the economy. It's a necessary good. And it has the added bonus of helping us build our great church buildings. So we're not really going to speak too strongly against greed in general. I'm being a bit Satirical. I hope you can pick up on that. Um, I think the, the, the comments of an early church father on this verse are correct. When he said, What a grave sin is greed, though we gloss over it when compared with fornication and uncleanness. We treat greed as a minor fault when in fact it is a grave matter. Now, Covetousness and greed are equally good translations of that word. However, I think we have to pay attention to something here. As Americans, we make a greater distinction between those two things than is justified. We tend to think that people can be greedy, even if they came about it lawfully, while we think that someone isn't covetous as long as they don't want what lawfully belongs to someone else. In other words, well, covetousness, that's only about wanting what somebody else has. Now, accordingly, a rich person could be greedy. They could want more than what they already have, which is plenty. But rarely would a rich person, by that definition, be covetous, because why would they want what the poor person has? I've never seen a rich person who said, if I could just have that beat-up old car. I mean, I really want that beat-up old car. You know, no. 
I really want that rundown house. No, they don't covet in that more traditional sense of the word. They might be greedy. It's the poor person who's got the problem with covetousness, right? I mean, they want what the rich person has. So those are the coveters, I mean, the way we tend to think about these things. Well, these words weren't so distinct to someone of a biblical mindset. In Scripture, people quite often lawfully owned what they did not rightfully own. They lawfully owned what they did not rightfully own. They lawfully owned more houses than they needed, while others had none. And the prophets called them out for that and spoke of God's wrath coming upon them for that. Covetousness is a great translation so long as we understand that one can covetously and legally own what is not rightfully theirs. Legal ownership does not remove all culpability. Well, I'll just leave you to think about that in your devotional times and see what the Lord does with it in your hearts. But Paul says these must not be named among you. What does it mean, these must not be named among you? Well, it can be understood in one of three ways. You, you can't even get close to it, would be one way to understand it. The NIV captures that idea with, there must not even be a hint of it. There must not even be a hint of it. Uh, another way that one prominent scholar suggested that it, it, it means that you can't even have conversations about it. In one translation, the Common English Bible captures that sense with this. It shouldn't even be mentioned among you. They, they shouldn't even be mentioned among you. The problem with that one is that, well, like Paul's mentioning it right here in the text. He's kind of talking about it right here. So if we're not even allowed to mention it, why is Paul mentioning it? So that one doesn't make any sense to me. Um, <clears throat> I think a literal reading, which is, and actually this is why I chose to read the ESV today, that it must not even be named among you, which is just a literal sense of the words, I think they're pretty easy to understand in a biblical context, not hard. The only question is, who's doing the naming? Okay. In this context, where the paragraph ends instructing us to walk as children of the light, and given the broader New Testament context and even biblical context of, uh, uh, as between the church or the people of God as light being our witness in the world, I would offer that it's about what the onlooking world might name among us. They must not even be named by the onlooking world among you. There's a lot we could support that with, but I'll just leave it at that. In other words... We bear God's name so that it is contradictory that Christ, the true human, should be involved in greed, sexual immorality, or impurity. And we are his body, so if we're involved in it, he's involved in it. What is named among us either honors or blasphemes God's name. As adopted children and heirs, we bear our Father's name for good or ill. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness, foolish talk, which may have uh, a sexual aspect to it, and crude or sexual joking reveal hearts whose desires still need to be transformed. Reveals hearts whose desires still need to be transformed. These are not just rules to make it harder on us. We, we tend to read things like this. I mean, 
I know my own history. I know the history of people I've talked to. We, we tend to read verses like this, and it's like, man, why does God have to make it so hard? Like, these are just rules put there to squash all our fun. But I think it's good to start with re- defining sin. We could define sin as humanity's rejection of God's good rule, and it, sin, is harmful to both ourselves, others, and all creation. Humanity's rejection of God's good rule, and which is harmful to both ourselves, others, and all creation. So, Paul's instruction about reforming our passions so that we desire God's good rule over our lives and cease to do or to desire what defaces God's image in us, what therefore defaces His name and harms ourselves and others, has to be done away with. Why? Because it hurts us. It hurts others. God doesn't want us to sin because He loves us. A loving God could not want us to do that which harms us and harms others and harms creation. He can only want us to do that which does not harm us and harm others and does not harm creation. For Paul, the opposite of these activities and debased conversations is not just silence and inactivity, but thanksgiving flowing from the heart. But rather, thanksgiving. For, you may be sure of this, that, this is verse 5, by the way, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All of this describes the lives of the sons of disobedience, not the adopted children of God who inherit the kingdom. But Paul's having to tell the adopted children of God they can't live that way anymore because they seem to forget that they're the adopted children of God. This language where it says that They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This language of inheritance comes up throughout this letter to the Ephesians because adoption is the controlling metaphor of the letter. Remember from one of our early messages in Ephesians that Roman adoption wasn't about parents needing children or children needing parents. Today, that's what adoption seems to be all about. Uh, Either a child needs a parent, so somebody out of goodwill adopts the child, or a potential parent doesn't have children, would like to have children, and there's a need for a child to have a parent, so they adopt so that they have a child. And usually it's some sort of mutual relationship between those two in one fashion or another. But that's not what adoption was about in the Roman world. In the Roman world, adopting children was actually rather uncommon. Adopting adults was common. As either as their chances of survival were much greater. In their minds, why would you want to adopt a child? It could die. (laughs) I mean, I know we don't think this way, but I'm just trying to get you into their mindset because Paul's writing to them, and this is how they would have thought about adoption. And so they wouldn't have thought that way. Um, And we would wonder, well, since adults are fully capable of living on their own, what benefit was there in adoption? What, What, in other words was the purpose of adoption. Well, adoption in the Roman world was a legally binding arrangement which provided an heir who would receive an inheritance 
and the role of caring for the rest of the household, not when the, not when the, the father who adopted dies, but immediately they would get the inheritance and this role of caring for the rest of the household. The adopted heir was included in the new household with all of its privileges and responsibilities. It ended their relationship to their former family, along with those responsibilities and privileges, and it began a whole new identity. Paul is saying here that anyone who still lives as the sons of disobedience hasn't truly taken on and inherited what the Father has for them. They are by no means capable of filling their role as sons and daughters of God to care for the rest of God's household. They are not living in the image of God. They're not living to be fully human as image bearers. We are no longer sons and daughters of a disobedience, but have been adopted and are now to live in our new family and new identity as children of light. And that leads to our second heading, children of light. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. Do not become partners with them. Adoption has made both a legal status change in who we are, and a transformative purpose change in what we live for. It's a legal status change in who we are, but it's a transformative purpose change in what we live for. As heirs of God, we cannot and must not partner with the sons of disobedience. It's literally, do not be their partners. Do not be their partners. Their inheritance and ours are two very different things. You can't dip into both. You can't try to live with one foot in each household. It doesn't work. We've been adopted and no longer belong to the old family. We are now partners in a new family. According to chapter 3, verse 6, it says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together. Same word as partners in our text. Partners in the promise of Christ Jesus. You see, we cannot be like Esau, who wanted both the promise, the blessing as heir of Jacob, and the immediate satisfaction of the stew. He wanted both. But he can't have both. He traded one for the other. Both are not possible. The promise comes by faith, and we must walk by faith. We, we tend to want our cake and eat it too, as the expression goes. We often dabble in our dark desires, trying to get our bite of stew while trying to hold on to the promise. But Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works or deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Read with me in verse 8. For at, that, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What follows is interesting. You were once darkness, now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. I don't know about you, but to me this sounds a bit odd. To call us either light or darkness... I think it's figurative, meaning belonging to the light or to the darkness. Paul said it this way to the Thessalonians. I think this is explanatory, at least. You're all children, sons and daughters, if you will, of the light, and children, literally, again, sons and daughters of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, 
But let us be awake and sober. Note the similarity of awake language and sleeping language that we have a little later in our text. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. To say that you are light in the Lord, I think, means that you belong to the, to the light. You belong to the, to the light. You're light in the Lord. What does it mean, though, when it says that we are children of light, or children characterized by, we could say, light? Well, first, I think it speaks to a change in how we perceive the world. There's a biologist, Ed Young, I've quoted him before. I'll probably quote him again because it's a really long book that I'm reading by him. Uh, but it's, it's fascinating. But he, he wrote this. He said, everything we experience is but a filtered version of everything that we could experience. Everything we experience is but a filtered version of everything that we could experience. He's talking about our senses. Our senses enable us to perceive so much of the world. But so much we can't perceive that's actually there. We don't see it. We don't hear it. We don't know that it's there. But it's there. And if we only had the senses to perceive it, we would. So, after pointing out how different animals see things that others do not based on how they process light, he says this. He says, it reminds us that there is light in darkness, noise in silence, richness in nothingness. It hints at flickers of the unfamiliar in the familiar, of the extraordinary in the everyday, of magnificence in mundanity. When I read that, I thought, this guy could be a preacher. <laughs> he could be a preacher for sure. As children of light, we no longer walk in the darkness, unable to see reality as it really is. Well, at least in part, that's begun, right? And the more we walk in the light, the more clearly we see what is really going on around us. To live for the same thing that the world lives for reveals that we are still in the darkness. So that's one thing it means. It means that we've cha- there's a change in how we perceive the world. Secondly, I think it means that we are to be characterized by light. And, and that that, therefore, speaks to a change of sphere. In a sense, you could say location. It's not quite the right word. Sphere gets closer. Paul tells the Colossians to joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. See, we're children of the light because we now live in a kingdom of light. It's a change of sphere, a change of what rule we are under. We might be in the same physical location, but we're under a different rule. For, Paul goes on to tell the Colossians, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. We have changed domains. We used to be under one king, a dark king, and we are now in the kingdom of light with a king of light. Indeed, the son whom the father loves is that king, Jesus. And he redeemed us and forgave us our rebellion against his kingdom. The second thing that I think is strange in this text is that it speaks of the fruit of light. In verse 9, the fruit of light. I don't know about you, but I don't generally think that light produces fruit. 
You know, it's just not kind of something that would come to me as I think about it. And it speaks of the fruitless deeds of darkness. We don't generally think of light bearing fruit. I think what's being talked about here is that it's the fruit produced by light in our lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit, to be sure, when you look at what's in it. It consists of all goodness, righteousness, which includes justice and truth. Now, what are the fruitless deeds of darkness, and how does that relate to the fruit of light? In Genesis 1, darkness bore no fruit. It was fruitless. There was darkness covering the earth, and there was no life whatsoever, no fruit being born. So God began by doing what? Let there be light. It's the first thing he said. Let there be light. Then God continued creating and ordering the world to bear fruit in order to sustain life. Finally, we read, so God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. You see, light coming into darkness led to fruitfulness. There was no fruit born in the utter darkness. When we come out of the darkness and into the light, we come into a place in which we can bear fruit. As God's adopted children, He calls us to be fruitful and multiply. And that fruitfulness is manifest in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then He says in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So how is it that the fruitless deeds of darkness are exposed by the light? I mean, it may sound like we're supposed to go around pointing out sin in people's lives, But that's not the case. Indeed, that's far from the case. As we live in the light, that light will shine on those around us. We don't have to say anything about the deeds of darkness and the lives of those who live in darkness. We are simply called to be the light of the world. Timothy Gombus, in his commentary on Ephesians, it's uh, uh, called the drama of Ephesians, notes that verse 13 could be translated... But all things that are being exposed by the light are made manifest. They're being exposed by the light. Likewise, we could say in verse 11, it could be read, but instead, be exposing them. Be exposing them. But how do we expose them? By living in the light. When we live in the light, it shines on the world around us because they're in darkness, and that's what light does in darkness. And when light shines in darkness, it it reveals things. You know, you ever walk into a room and you need to get across it, but it's dark. You immediately look for a light. When you flip it on, you realize had you kept going, you might have tripped over several things before you got to your destination. Okay? Light exposes things. As we, the church, live in the light, the light will do its exposing work. And then finally, he says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
F.F. Bruce suggests something quite interesting about this verse, this line that I just read. He believes, based on his study of you know, the, the language here and how it's done, he, he believes that this was an early baptismal hymn that was sung by the congregation as they greet the new brother or sister in Christ when they come up out of the water. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If he's correct, that adds all the more credence to the idea that baptism is the adoption ritual of the family of God. Imagine this picture of us coming out of our sleep of spiritual death and in, out of that darkness and into the light of life. Well, in conclusion, how do we embody the light? In verses 15 through 20, I really Paul's simple therefore. His his real simple application. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. By the way, notice he doesn't say the days are evil, therefore panic. It's not there. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, or melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, th- I think sometimes we're all kind of more or less waiting for some sort of magical solution to our problems. If we can just get to the application part and he can tell me how to fix my life, that's what I'm really waiting for in this sermon. He can tell us how to live in the white. There's a magic bullet. I'm sure there is. But Paul doesn't offer magic. He just offers basic Christian living. Pay attention to how you walk. Walk in the wisdom of the cross, not the foolishness of the world. Recognize the times. The days are evil. Use your time to do the will of the Lord. That's, you want to make a difference in this evil world? Go do righteousness. Yeah, that'll make a difference. It, you, all the complaining about the evil in the world won't change a lick of it. Go do righteousness. That'll make a difference. Don't get drunk with wine. Rather be filled with the Spirit. How do you do that? As you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in your heart while you are speaking to one another, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Just basic Christian living. Gratitude flowing from our hearts. Praise and worship flowing from our hearts. Rebecca DeYoung Uh, using marriage uh, as an allegory to represent our relationships to God and one another. She writes this. She says, Sometimes marriage or other friendship feel euphoric and energizing. Other times they are tedious, empty, wearying routines, or just plain work. The point is that being committed to any love relationship takes daily nurturing, daily effort, and daily practices that build it up. You see, verses 15 through 20 describe the daily nurturing, the daily effort, and the daily practices required to build up our relationship with God and His family. As adopted children, these are essential to filling our inherited role as God's adopted sons and daughters. 
to do the to live in the mission that he has called us to live in. Now, if I imagine that Tuesday evening, Adelia really was a couple of weeks ago going to bear down on Tampa Bay destructively. Why would Donna and I, like so many asked us, want to fly back to Tampa late Monday night? Are you going back? Surely you're heading back to your house. Well, no. I'm definitively safe here. I don't know that I would be there, but that's just the first question people ask. Just a quick side note, one of the funniest things while we were there, we turned on the news finally because we kept hearing about this. And so we turned on the, I think it was CBS National Weather News with the weather on that. And the guy's saying, you want to know what nine feet of storm surge could look like? And then he shows this picture of a guy in his house with his nice raised yard and his car in the driveway. And, and, And of course, he shows nine feet of water going up to the top. That's what nine feet of storm surge looks like. And I thought, no, it isn't. That's a complete lie. That isn't what nine feet looks like. That house is clearly not sitting on the sea. (laughs) That's nine feet from sea level, not from where that guy's house is. But this is how they terrorize people with these things, you know. But the good news is is it keeps some people from moving to Florida, which we are happy about, (laughs) to be sure. Don't let me do that. Why would we want to fly back Monday night so we can enjoy the storm, so to speak? No, we, we stayed in the light, the sunny light of the Midwest, away from the coming wrath of Adelia. We did. We prayed for those of you who were here. We offered our home to others who were here. But we also visited family, had ice cream, and went to a bakery. That's what we did. We did. Yes, we did. All on Tuesday. Yeah. Why would adopted children of God move back in with their old family, the sons of disobedience, into a household upon which the wrath of God is coming? Why would we live that way? Why would we keep going back and dipping in that trough like a dog returning to its vomit? It makes no sense. Those things are destructive to human life, both our own and to those around us and to all of God's creation. Let's live in the light. Amen? Heavenly Father, it's a sobering text that we had this morning in some ways. It certainly speaks to some of the more baser issues that we grapple with as the people of God. And yet, you promised deliverance from this present evil age. You promised salvation from that, and you died to make it so. To free us from it. You've adopted us, our Father, in Christ. You've given us a role in your household. Oh, Lord Jesus, transform us, we pray. Amen. Amen.